Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When Aaron Brady arrived to Boston in 2013, he was wary of who he crossed paths with. He picked up some work and by all accounts, kept his head firmly down He was still in a relationship with his girlfriend from home. She'd moved to America in early 2014, and the pair tried to maintain a romantic connection between Boston and New York City, where she was now based. Long distance was proving difficult though, and on Valentine's Day 2014, Brady felt their love was on the rocks. They'd found the physical separation difficult, so he made a decision to skip work and travel to be with her that day. The night of romance proved costly as he lost his job. Now, with no close ties to the city, Boston no longer offered him any reason to stay. Just one year after arriving, he packed up his things and took a five-hour drive south down the I-95 to Woodlawn Heights, a predominantly Irish neighbourhood in the Bronx, one of New York City's five boroughs. Like Boston, the big Irish community in New York appealed to him. Little did he know, it would ultimately be his demise. Over the next four years, Aaron Brady would make a name for himself on the streets and bars occupied by Irish expats. That reputation, though, would differ depending on who you spoke to. An innocent man, fighting against a corrupt system. A clown and a drunk who can't keep his mouth shut. Or a hard-working tradesman who blended into the background and kept himself to himself. He said, those guards want me, they'd be fucking after me. I shot that fucking guard and, you know, this type of stuff. Well, Ireland's never going to work with the United States and they're not going to extradite me. I just think he just was cocky. I just think that he didn't care about life. The Making of a Detective is brought to you by the Irish Sun. I mean Doyle. This is our penultimate episode of the series. If you've enjoyed it so far, please take a quick moment and leave us a review in your podcast app. Or even better, tell a friend about the show. When the incident happened in January 2013 and information emerges about who the suspects might be and, and the media subsequently reported on that, but as the months went on, um, it was quickly established that Aaron Brady had built a new life for himself in America. 
obviously people in the media like myself, we, we couldn't write about someone like Aaron Brady uh, because he hadn't been convicted of any crime at, at that stage. But the, the guards were here obviously hoping for justice as well. Today we're coming back out not just with an update of the investigation but with two new pieces of uh, evidence that we hope will assist the investigation. There was a, a child's car seat. It's described as a... In early 2014, Pat returned to work after a prolonged illness but took himself off the Adrian Donoghue case, having been asked to share its lead with another officer. For the next three years, he'd be hard at work investigating other high-profile cases across his district. I had two or three other murder investigations on the go at the same time. I had Irene White, I had um, the double murder of, of Joseph Redmond and Anthony Burnett, and I had the sexual abuse allegations by Michael Shine. He still felt bitter about the Dunahoo investigation, that he should have been leading the case himself. To have been asked to co-lead it, as he put it, was an insult. The success he achieved in the years following held more personal significance because of it. But at the end of 2016, things took an unexpected turn. And Pat found himself back in the middle of Ireland's largest ever manhunt. I'll tell you how I ended up back in the fold. Very, very simple. Uh, time had passed, three years had passed, where this new management team had been in running Adrian's investigation and the man who took my position, they promoted him. So they had no one to put in his place. I was the only person there. And they asked me, would you go back in? I said I would because I was in a position of knowing I could do this. So I went in and took over the investigation from where it had been left by the last team. And I wasn't impressed at all. A lot of the recommendations I had made in respect of how the investigation should progress was not done. Pat felt like he was starting from square one all over again. It brought him back to those early dark days in January 2013. I sat down with the team the first day I had taken it over in 2016 and I looked around and I never saw as many pale faces and dormant looks and I said lads what's happening like what's no breaks no no, nothing 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 in the following days in an effort to try and boost her morale Pat organised one-to-one meetings with each member of his team he needed them up for the challenge ahead. They came in and sat down and they told me how they felt and what they thought. Aaron Brady was still active in New York City, but the Guardi found it difficult to pinpoint exactly where he was living and what he was doing there. It was clear that once he made his exodus from Ireland, the investigation took on a whole new life of its own. You know, it got really intriguing in the case when Aaron Brady decides to go to America because I think by him going to America, he thought, look, I'm in the clear here. The Guardi have no evidence. There's been a few years um, since this incident has happened. Um, and if the guards were looking for me, they, they would have come for me uh, by now. I knew there was merit in going to America and had actually suggested that 
prior to me getting sick, like it's something that should be looked at because some of the suspects were gone to America. And uh, it was something that I would have progressed if I hadn't got sick. During Pat's time off, a relationship with the NYPD had been built up by the new senior investigating officer on the case. This would be pivotal in tracking down Aaron Brady as the time went on. The Guardi made contact with Homeland Security, whose function is more closely tied to issues around immigration and customs. They organised a meeting with two of their officers based out of London. And I met two of them in the Ashling Hotel uh, and spoke to them in respect of Adrian's murder. And they were very interested in helping. Cop culture in America was strong. For those working in the field, it was more than just a job. Pat quickly learned how valuable US help would be in tracking down their man. And they looked on the murder of Adrian as a murder of, of one of their own. They felt that like all police are the same all over the world, which they are because police have a certain train of thought. or the, the, It's very hard to explain it, but police are police. You know what I mean? They have a, a way, they have a, a, a mental status, let's say. And they felt that, look, he was one of us, like, and that was, that was it. And that's the way to look at it, like, absolutely. It was clear that a joint effort between Homeland Security and the NYPD would be needed to track down Aaron Brady. He had overstayed his 90-day holiday visa and was operating as an illegal alien during his stay. Outside of the murder investigation, he had no grounds for working or living in the States. Obviously, he wasn't aware to the extent of the global aspect of the Guard investigation, and that involved members of an, an Garda Shiacana going to New York. And the NYPD confirmed and um, agreed to work with the Garda in terms of uh, building up an intelligence profile on Aaron Brady, you know, his movements, his location, as the Garda investigation was progressing. Brady's relationship with his Irish girlfriend didn't last much longer than their Valentine's rendezvous. But he'd settled into the Bronx and was beginning to feel a bit more at ease in his title as Ireland's most wanted man. Homeland Security and the NYPD began work on tracking down Aaron Brady. They wanted to know anything that they could about him, what sort of life he had built for himself. This is where Eddie Gonzalez and James Walsh come in. Both men are experienced NYPD detectives and were initially assigned to the Aaron Brady case during Pat's time off the investigation. The two had forged strong links with the case's senior investigating officer between 2014 and 2017. James is Eddie's superior, but the two men have worked together for years. And both men were at the top of their game when they first became involved in the case. This is James. What I was doing prior to this case was domestic terrorism. Doing surveillance, uh, trying to meet up with people. James Walsh, or Jimmy, to Eddie, is quiet enough and keeps things relatively close to his chest. Eddie, on the other hand, he's a big character. Sometimes I make the drug deal and say, you're not going to do this to me, really? They were like, okay, you convinced me. All right, I'm going to sell to you. <laughs> you go to jail. <laughs> Loud, animated, and full of conversation. Probably not what you'd expect for one of New York City's finest undercover agents. But rather than always keeping a low profile, he prided himself on being able to fit into his surroundings. And that's why he was so good at his job. I can blend in there because there are Hispanics around there. 
you know, I can drink with the best too, you know? So there goes, <laughs> let's go without saying. <laughs> Working closely with Homeland Security, the scope of the cases the detectives were assigned to would change quite often. I was called into my commanding officer's uh, office and I was handed a, uh, some papers and I was told that I was going to be assigned uh, a case to watch Aaron Brady or try to contact Aaron Brady or do surveillance on Aaron Brady. In that folder, there was uh, information, there was pictures, there was addresses and associates. The Guardi supplied the officers with any intel they had. I started surveillance on what the uh, Guardi gave us as his residence, and we quickly found out that uh, we didn't think he was living there. On this typical case, he informed me that, you know, he just got tapped on, Mr. Brady, that, you know, he allegedly killed an officer in your country. And at which time he's like, listen, we're still trying to find out where he is located at. Although Aaron Brady wasn't active at the residence provided, both police forces were confident that he was still living within one of the Irish American communities throughout the Bronx and Queens. They had an idea. He was working probably in construction and then he was moving around. And then we have an area in Yonkers and that in Yonkers in the Bronx called Woodland Park, which majority of people from Ireland comes there and they, they migrate there. It's a heavily Irish immigrant community there. I frequently go in that area. I'm always in that area most of the time. Because of the job, I, I know a lot of people from Ireland. So that's the reason why I'm always frequent at the pubs there. During that day, um, you know, Jimmy said, listen, if you ever see him, make sure you take pictures and video if you can. Um, notify me, notify my supervisor. Let us know where you see him at, and let's just see his daily activity. Similar to Pat, as an undercover investigator, Eddie rarely switched off outside of his working hours. He'd tip away at work from his home, and always would be aware of his surroundings while out. New York City in the summertime is unlike anywhere else on the planet. There is a huge community feeling that sweeps across the five boroughs, as outdoor events take up street corners and public parks. It was a hot summer's day, and Eddie had the weekend off. And I was going to go to a street fair they were just setting up. He'd seen online that a community party was taking place in a neighbourhood he frequented in the Bronx. With nothing else on his agenda, he made his way over. So they were putting the block in the streets and the vendors and everybody was there. While waiting for the festivities to commence, Eddie heard the loud noise of a heavy material object being dragged along the tarmac. He turned around to see what was going on and to make sure he wasn't in the way. A man in his 20s, slightly burned from the sun, dragged a bouncing castle closer and closer to the corner that Eddie was standing on, sporting bushy stubble, a navy GAA jersey, and familiar short dark hair. It looked like Aaron Brady. But Eddie couldn't be sure. So I had his picture on my phone. I kept looking back and forth, back and forth, at which time as I seen him setting up the bouncy balloons for the kids. So he's blowing it up. I really wanted to make sure, so I sent him, I sent a picture to, to Jimmy, Jimmy said, that's him, Eddie. 
James cancelled his plans for that afternoon and made his way across the city to join in the surveillance. During that time, I'm observing him. He's very leery, looking all around. You know, he was aware, he was aware of his surroundings. He really wanted to know what was going on. I took the pictures of the of the cart that he had, the trailer, the license plates again, uh, him, his activity. Nonchalant, like he, you know, again, like he never did nothing wrong. But in my experience, I could tell that he was like, okay, is the hammer ever going to come? He's looking around. We were able to set up a uh, surveillance on him, which entailed him when he got to Gaelic Park, him leaving. We were able to set up with several cars and be able to follow him back to his residence. And from that, we could set up par uh, patterns of his of his uh, existence at that time, you know, work, where he would go. And we were able to follow him from there. On the ground, Eddie and other officers spent time trailing Brady, building up a picture of what life was like for him. He was living in a uh, apartment with several roommates, uh, and he was working construction. Uh, he then moved to a separate residence, a, a nicer place, and he moved in with his girlfriend, soon to be wife. Uh, and he, mostly he would work construction uh, and then go to some pubs at night. Again, my opinion, what I observed and what I saw other photos and everything and, and read some reports, he just walked around like he just got away with Scott Free. Went to the pubs, drank. Again, some of our investigation, he boasted like, you know, hey, you know, I, I did something crazy. You know, like he thought it was okay. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Aaron Brady was now in a new relationship with a woman from Kerry he had met in New York. Things were progressing quickly for them. They had a child together, a baby boy she'd recently given birth to. Work was going well for Brady too. He was earning up to $65 an hour on construction sites dotted around the city. The hours were long, but the money was good. So good, in fact, it made laundering diesel look like a fool's game. Obviously, he wasn't aware to the extent of the global aspect of the Garda investigation, and that involved members of an, an Garda Shiacana going to New York, and the NYPD confirmed and um, agreed to work with the Garda in terms of uh, building up an intelligence profile 
on Aaron Brady, you know, his movements, his location, as the Garda investigation was progressing. Aaron Brady was highly involved in the GAA community in New York. He played for the Sligo team and would have regularly participated in the social events attached to the club. The bouncy castle he was dragging towards the party, that was organised by the team. Eddie believes that although he seemed to be enjoying himself stateside, he also must have been living in fear, a lingering thought of when time might run out. In the back of your mind, I think you're always going to feel that someday it may happen. But he was so brandish that he didn't care. Um, did he look leery? Did he look around? Yes. But again, I think he's just going to be that way until he until he got caught. So again, his lifestyle, you know, for me, if it would have been me, I'd be scared. I wouldn't even show my face. But he would go all up and down McLean and, and have a good time. I don't understand that, you know, knowing that he committed this horrific crime. Accounting for Brady's movements was only half the battle. The Guardi still needed to prove beyond reasonable doubt that he was responsible for the crime, particularly as the man who pulled the trigger during the raid. So far the evidence was lacking. Brady's weak alibi proved he was hiding something, but it didn't prove he was the one who shot Adrian Donahue. The Guardi needed more. Inquiries needed to be made over there, and as it turned out, uh, and this is the, the the interesting thing about this is that there was a newspaper article in the local Argus by a Sinn Féin councillor about the arm robbery, and that the uh, anyone with information should come forward and tell the Gardaí. And this particular councillor put it up on his Facebook account, and a friend of his who was living in America contacted him and said I know Aaron Brady's over here and he told me he shot the guard and would you get the guards to contact me and I took up that inquiry and uh, I spoke with the counsellor and he told me yeah this this is the man in America who's telling me this Over a phone call Pat made contact with the man in America He told Pat he'd met Aaron Brady in a local bar Brady didn't spend much time in the pub when he first got to the city, but as time elapsed, he felt much more comfortable socialising with other expats around him. Pat felt this could be his first big break in the case. As he made contact, the man repeated what he'd said to the Sinn Féin counsellor, that Aaron Brady had confessed to the shooting. Pat was stunned, although it wasn't the first time in his career he'd come across a casual admission of guilt under the influence of alcohol. And I said, would you make a statement? And he wouldn't make a statement. He, said, he didn't want to make a statement. He said, that's fine. I understand if you don't want it, and I can understand you may be under fear. The witness told Pat he didn't fear anyone. If anything, he seemed insulted by the accusation. Having come so close to securing such a vital bit of information, Pat wasn't ready to give up just yet. And I was trying to get across to him that what he was telling me was very important and vital in the progress in the investigation and I would like him to come forward and make that statement and I'm not going to lie to you he said you'll need to go to court you'll need to stand up and say what you say in your statement and he says I'll talk to you he says next couple of days and I says fair enough Pat wasn't too sure if the man would cooperate days went by and he heard nothing 
his spirits were beginning to drop. I would try to ring him, his phone was off. I said, that's that now, this, you know. That was until he got a phone call from an unknown American number. The man was keen to talk and apologised for leaving Pat waiting. I got a phone call then from him on a different number and he says, I'm sorry. I said, Grant, not a bother. But he says, I did make up my mind, I will make a statement. And I said, are you sure? He said, yes. Uh, there's one difficulty, but he says, I ran it through two very good friends of mine, people I would trust, and one of them told me, make your statement and stand up and be counted. And the other one told me, don't have anything got to do with the guards, keep your mouth shut, you know nothing. And that was, he says, but I think I've taught it out myself, and I think about Adrian Donahue's wife, and in particular his two children, and that's why I want to make a statement. So he said, if you come over on the 15th of that month, whatever it was, 15th of September, October, wherever it was, he says, I'll meet you in New York. They arranged to meet on 10th and 24th Street in Chelsea Village, a busy upmarket part of Manhattan. And he says, I'll meet you at the corner there at such a time. And I said, fair enough. And... Uh, I was delighted with that. I said, I thought I had... Now, I had this person, I knew who he was, and I had him well-vetted and checked out. You always have a fear that you're being set up, that they have a plant in there to tell you lies or to put you off the investigation or to, you know. But I had this person well-checked out, and I was quite happy with his bona fides and that he was who he was. And he told me the truth, and he was legitimate in New York, and... He wasn't a, a person looking for anything from the guards or looking for anything from Homeland Security or anything of that nature that there'd be no compromise in, in any way. Pat asked him to relay what had happened on the night he spoke to Brady. He, he was disgusted. It was after a wedding and everyone was back in this pub in, in Yonkers. And uh, I don't know, it was three or four o'clock in the morning, wherever they go drinking in America. And uh, someone says, that's Aaron Brady over there, the fella there. Brady cut a lonely figure, sitting alone at the bar. The man approached him out of curiosity, if nothing else. The rumours of a cop killer had been circulating around Woodlawn Heights, and he wanted to see for himself if they were true. And he says, I, I went over to him, he says, uh, how is she going? He says, you're from Ireland, and he says, yeah, uh, I'm Brady. All oh, right, I think I heard of you, yeah, I'm the fellow they're writing about, I shot the guard, yeah, you know. And he said he said it in such a way that there's no doubt he meant what he said, like, you know. And uh, he said, I was disgusted. He says, I bought him a short, gave it to him, and skedaddled, he said, you know. But I was very annoyed. He said, very, very annoyed. But he said, uh, I will make this statement. He went to Homeland Security facility, and he made a statement on camera, exactly what he said. Getting the statement on tape was vital and a huge break in the case for Pat. He felt they were now making good progress in the investigation. As the men were leaving the facility, they made small talk, walking up the sidewalk. He just said it to me on the way up. He said, you know, there's other people out here know about Aaron Brady. And he has mounted it off to other people. He says, I know one of them. He said, it, but I'm not telling you. He said, because that person has asked me not to give you his name and I said that's fine I understand and I respect that there's no, there's no problem he said no that's grand 
But he says other people out here do know. Ladies and gentlemen, for your safety and comfort, please stow your hand baggage in the overhead bins above your seat. After a successful few days stateside, Pat and his colleague flew home from JFK International. He couldn't stop thinking about his witness's comment that there were more people out there who Brady had spoken to. So when I was going on the plane back to Ireland and I was talking to Bobby, I said, Bobby, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to break this now and I know what I'm going to do. And he says, what? I says, I'm going to do a poster campaign. Bobby initially laughed. But Pat was deadly serious. He knew there were more people out there, with info on the murder. This was always going to be a case, built around circumstantial evidence, and every statement they collected would make a huge difference when it came to prosecution. And I came back and drew up a poster with two of my superb detectives there, Sergeant uh, Kieran Clancy, Detective Kieran Kieran Clancy, who's the incident room manager, and the incident room coordinator, uh, James Doherty. And we drew up a poster that we could put around the, the, the Katona area and the Bronx and that to, to, to see could we generate someone with interest that could ring us with information. And that's exactly what we did. Pat had one more trick up his sleeve. I knew that uh, one of the TDs in Dundalk there, he's a Finnegale TD, his brother owned the Central newspaper in New York. They distribute three million newspapers a week to the Irish diaspora over there. And I thought, Jeannie, what an opportunity. He rang Fergus O'Dowd, the Dundalk-based TD, looking for his brother Niall's telephone number. A call was set up between Pat and the newspaper publisher. I rang his brother and he says, you do up an article and give us a copy of your poster and we put it on the front page. I said, that's grand. Now that was massive. So I went ahead and done this. I went and got the posters printed myself at my own money. And I got Homeland Security to distribute these posters, which they said they would. They went into every shop and pub and every pole in the area of Catone and around that area and uh, put them up. It read, $100,000 reward. For info and suspect, an Irish cop killing who lived in Bronx. Police believe there is no question that cop killer is known in the Irish community in New York City. I had a, a burner phone and a number, and I had that number on the poster to ring me, the senior investigating officer. And hey presto, one day it rang, and it was the guy ringing from America. And he says, I'm going to tell you certain things, and he did tell me certain things. Two names that came up that people that needed to be spoken to. Things were beginning to come together and he was hopeful they were closing in on Brady. Two of the suspects were in Boston and I looked to have a conference with the um, the district attorney in, in Boston and uh, I got that and I gave a PowerPoint presentation to him and his team about the murder of Adrian Donoghue and about the suspects living in the jurisdiction of Boston. And they were very helpful and said they would progress things as much as they could for us. After the stop-off in Boston, Pat and his incident room coordinator flew to New York. They'd been given a tip-off about a man who knew Aaron Brady well. Because of issues around jurisdiction, 
Gardy could only help direct the case. Everything had to be led through Homeland Security with the use of their officers. The only problem was, though, they were struggling to track the man down. He said they called his girlfriend, who happened to be Molly Stalton, and see if she knew where he was. And when they called there with Homeland Security, they said that there were Irish police here and they were wishing to speak to their boyfriend and she sort of was it to do with the person who was killed and she came out with this. Molly Staunton was the girlfriend of a former roommate of Aaron Brady's. She was an American woman who had friends within the Irish community around Woodlawn Heights and the Bronx. They said, well, look, do you want to speak to us? And she said, yeah. And she came out and said, yeah, I was... I stayed in an apartment with Aaron Brady and he came out of his room one evening crying and going and asking his wife was pregnant or his girlfriend was pregnant and he needed to get more money. She told officers that Brady was a wreck, emotionally unstable and clearly distressed. Staunton was worried for him. She didn't think he had the maturity or emotional capacity to care for a newborn. Brady blurted something out that rendered her speechless. That he had to carry around the guilt of having murdered a cop. And that he was the most feared man in Ireland. He said, those guards want me, they'd be fucking after me. I shot that fucking guard and, you know, this type of stuff. This new information was transformative for the case. It was clear Brady hadn't been keeping a lid on his actions once he got to New York. Stephen Breen, the Irish Sun's crime editor, gives his assertion on why he believes he couldn't keep his mouth shut. If you look at it, he was someone who did like a drink. His social media photographs from his time in New York, a lot of them are about him out partying, you know, enjoying the nightclubs. And he did build up a close circle of friends there. And I, I think there was a certain an element of arrogance once again, uh, bravado, playing like the macho image. If you cross me, here's what I did in Ireland. You know, I could do this to you. So trying to again build up this reputation of someone who is capable of, of killing someone and is a cop killer which is something that no one wants to be associated with, but he didn't have any problem telling people that this is what he did. Pat's seen this behaviour before. It was something that perplexed him earlier on in his career. But he came to understand why criminals might vent about their past. Over my years dealing with murderers, and I have come across it on several occasions, where people who murder sometimes want to tell and get a degree of not self-satisfaction, but a, a lift of guilt by saying it. And if you look at, let's say, Joe O'Reilly, he told Rachel's best friend he killed Rachel, but it was in a dream he was doing it. But still he told her he did it. I just think he just was cocky. I just think that he didn't care about life. You know, about other people's life, so... And again, I'm so happy that we were able to do this. So, you know, his arrogance got the best of him, let's put it that way. Brady was lucky to begin with. What's not that these people, after a strategic appeal, came forward? What I'm saying is that it's not uncommon for someone who uh, commits a murder to say it as a way of, you know, letting it out a valve of some sort. I think Aaron Brady was no different. He needed to say it. He needed to feel free of it. And he said it to several people. And he made comments to certain people who 
I interviewed him and admitted to me that he had said certain things but wouldn't make statements. The case was plagued by potential witnesses not wanting to speak to the police, something that will be explained much more in the next episode. Thankfully, that wasn't the case for some involved in the investigation. The first guy I met there in, in New York stood up and I said it to him, like, you know, there's um, a reward of 100000 And he said, yeah, I know that. He says, but don't mention the reward to me. I don't want anything. I am doing this for Adrian Dunham's wife and his children. I'm not doing this for money or anything of the sort. And don't mention money again. And that was it. He made it quite clear. There was no motive other than he was a good person doing the right thing. Pat was relieved the case was finally making headway. Circumstantially, the evidence was all coming together and he felt they were on the right track to hold Brady to account for the Lordship shooting. Something, though, about Adrian's death changed things for Pat. He was struggling to progress further in his career. The Pat Murray of 20 years ago might have said, just put the head down and focus on the job. But emotionally and mentally, he was now over most of the trials and tribulations that came with being a detective. I'd gone for promotion on a number of occasions and uh, I was always outflanked. So I made up my mind at that time that uh, I was going to leave the guards. There was nothing in the guards for me anymore in respect to progressing to another rank. I'm not valued, obviously, by them above in the top table and that's fine. That's the way they think. I've made my mind up, I'm going to leave. And I said to myself, and I, I made a pact with my wife, when I salvage the nuns, I'm out of here, and that's it. Next time, on the making of a detective. The door of the cell was opened. He was standing there. He walked out with a bit of a brazen head on him. And as he walked out, I just put my hand on his shoulder and I said, no, you're free now. You're not detained under the provisions of Section 50 anymore. The making of a detective is brought to you by the Irish Sun. This podcast is written and produced by me, Ian Doyle. Join us next week for the last podcast in our series as Pat tries to secure justice for the Donahue family. If you want to learn more about the life and career of Pat Murray, buy his book, The Making of a Detective by Penguin Books. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.